All right. It has been, uh, it's been a busy week and a busy weekend. I feel like I've been going constantly all weekend. And so the bad news is um, I don't feel particularly ready for this morning because I got done with the message on Friday morning and then just was, we were doing the outreach thing Friday night and then almost all day yesterday was the volleyball tournament and then the the special uh, worship service and teaching time last night. And uh, then we had technical things that were going wrong that we had to fix and just things don't feel particularly ready for me. But the good news is I'm not trying to do anything fancy this morning. We're looking at three passages of scripture, two from Matthew, one from Romans. They're all related to each other. And our job is to simply ask, what is God communicating? What's it say in these passages? What does it mean? And why does it matter to us? And if you've been around VCC for a while, you're already familiar, at least with two of these passages, quite a lot. So hopefully this will serve as a refresher to you. Let's pray. Father, as the the kids get ready to to go learn in their own environment downstairs, we pray that you would uh, work in their their leaders and teachers, help them to clearly communicate your biblical truths to those kids. I pray that their hearts would be open, that those truths would be going deep down inside of them, and they, Lord, would, would grow and and come to know you at a young age and uh, grow into um, fully committed followers of you, even as children and teens, that they would hold fast to you as you hold fast to them, that they, Lord, that they wouldn't uh, experience the folly that so many of us experienced in our, in our teen years and in our younger 20s, Lord, but that you would uh, you'd keep them firmly in your family, that they would know the joy of walking with you through that tumultuous season. Lord, as we come to your word now, we ask that you'd help us to to understand what it is that you're saying to us. We pray that you would help us to submit ourselves to your word. So we recognize you as the the supreme authority in the universe, and you've given us your word as an extension of that authority. And so we we come and place ourselves under that this morning. We are your people, and we offer you this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever walked into a room and then realized, I don't know why I'm here? I, I was coming for something, or I was going to get so I, I don't know what it is. You turn around, you walk out of the room, right? And then later in the day, you remember what it is, and you go back. So I see Rick nodding his head like crazy over there. Uh, as probably happened to all of us, um, for some of us, we are a little, uh, we're a little discouraged that it seems to be happening more often in recent years, and that's, uh, that's scaring us a little bit. Maybe you've had a similar experience. You have given instructions to your children. Millions of times, I've given instructions to my children, and then I found out later that they weren't actually followed, or they were partially followed, right? Sometimes it's just outright rebellion, disobedience. Dad says he wants me to do this. I don't want to do that. I would rather do something else. Sometimes it's just um, kind of a, an innocent distraction, like, okay, I'm going to go do the thing that Dad asked me to do, but wow, look at that. That looks, that looks really interesting, and, and the kid is off in that other direction. You guys probably know that the more complicated the instructions, the more stages to the task, the less likely it is that the kid is actually going to be able to complete them, right? So many times I will say something to my kids like, okay, I want you to go downstairs, I want you to get the laundry out of the washer, take it out, hang it on the line in the backyard, right? And then I want you to go put the scooters away. Well, you guys know what happens, right? The laundry gets taken out. It hopefully gets hung in the backyard, 
but there's almost no chance that the scooters are getting put away right? because it's just three steps. It's just too much sometimes. We get distracted easily and we lose sight of the mission that we've been given us. That is true of us as Christians and as a church too. God has given us a mission. We didn't have to make it up. We didn't have to come up with it. He has given it to us. And it is, while uh, simple in one sense, it is also complicated. There are parts to it. There are stages to it. And it's a lifelong mission. And so we tend to get distracted. We tend to forget about parts of it and get off mission. So my hope today is through uh, the Word of God to help remind us of what God has called us to do as a church and as individuals. So we have a particular mission as a church, and it's not to entertain each other. It's not to be a social club. It's not to be like a cruise ship. It's not to be a, a uh, closely knit, closed community that kind of keeps our backs to the rest of the world. It's not simply to provide a healthy alternative for young people to avoid the dangers of sex and drugs and drinking and all of that stuff. We are not called to be a school or an information dispensing entity. We're not called to be a creative content provider where we put together fancy videos in order to help you get, get you through the week. We're not called to be a therapeutic community where we're just hugging each other all the time saying, you can do it, you can get through it. Jason's shaking his head. He doesn't want anything to do with the hugging. So after church, go give Jason a hug. He'll really appreciate it. Now, We're not called to be uh, a political action committee. We're not called to wage a culture war or nostalgically look back on the good old days and try to get those back. We have been given a specific and unique mission in the world. At the end of this summer, when we get done with 1 John, it's my intention to pe- preach through the book of Acts. And I'm really looking forward to this. Some of you that I've talked to are looking forward to do. Acts is the story of the early church. So it's written by Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then Acts is like part two. So we end the Gospel of Luke. Jesus has, has died. He's resurrected. He's ascended to heaven. And then Acts takes off from there and so, shows the story of how the church is born and how it grows and it takes over like the Mediterranean world. Within a few decades, millions of people are saved through the witness of those scared, messed up, cowardly first believers because the Spirit transforms them, sends them out on mission, and they, they turn the world upside down. That's the story of Acts. I'm really looking forward to working through that with you guys as a church. But the the church, even though the Acts, Acts is the story of the church, the church is actually born or started before the book of Acts. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Matthew chapter 16. This is where we first see Jesus use the word church. It's the first mention of the word or the use of the word church in the New Testament. Lots of people used the word church before then. It just didn't mean what we think it means. It was basically just a, uh, a secular term for a, a group of people called out for a particular purpose. But Jesus gives it a whole new level of meaning. He's going to have a conversation here in Matthew 16 
where he's going to turn the world upside down. And we're going to see in this and in our next passage in Matthew how Jesus constituted, then chartered, then commissioned his church. So Matthew 16, starting with verse 13. Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples, and he's about to take them by surprise. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? When Jesus says Son of Man, he's referring to himself. It's his favorite title for himself. Yes, he is the Son of God. He's also the Son of Man. And all of the original people that heard him say that didn't think, oh, he means he's human. What he means is, I am like that Messiah figure in the Old Testament with the title Son of Man that we see particularly in the book of Daniel. It's Jesus actually claiming a divine title there. So he he loves to use that title for himself. He says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? They said to him, some say John the Baptist, who at this point was dead, so they're saying maybe he came back from the dead. Others say Elijah, who's been dead for a long time. Others say Jeremiah, also dead for a long time. Or one of the prophets, again, dead for a long time. So it seems to be the consensus is this man is somehow a resurrected Old Testament hero, which is really kind of an interesting thing for them to think. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Remember, he's talking just to his closest buddies here. They've been with him maybe a year, year and a half now. They've seen him do all kinds of miracles. They've heard him teach. They've, he, they've witnessed things that they cannot explain. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ or we would say the Messiah, the Chosen One, the Rescuer, the Deliverer. You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. Now this is a high point for Simon Peter. He's got some low points, but this is a high point for him. He got the answer right. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He probably pauses. Jesus smiles at him, and he's like high-fiving Andrew. Yes, I got it right. But Jesus doesn't just say, good job, Simon, you figured it out. He says, good job, Simon. You weren't smart enough to figure this out yourself. My Father in heaven has revealed this to you. Now, this is true of us, too. If we correctly know who Jesus is, the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's not because we figured it out. It's not because we sat down and we said, I'm going to discover the most important truth in the universe. I'm going to read everything I can until I figure out what it is. That's not it. It's because our Father in heaven has picked us and revealed to us, opened our hearts, opened our minds, said, this is the truth. We can't take credit for that. It is a work of God So if you are today a child of God, you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, it's because the Father revealed that to you, just like he did here with Simon. Now what he says is a, a basic Christian confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that confession, we're going to see, it becomes a foundation for Jesus to build his church. So Jesus goes on in verse 18. He says, I tell you, you are Peter. So he's, he's changing his name here from Simon to Peter. And he, sometimes he's called Simon Peter. And he just, he's got all kinds of names. But I tell you, you are Peter, 
which basically means pebble, little rock. And on this rock, meaning big rock like boulder, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So right there in verse 18, we get that first biblical use of the word church. Nowhere in the Old Testament, nowhere in the first 15 chapters of the New Testament do we see the word church. Jesus uses it here for the first time. He's going to talk about how he builds his church and he builds it on a particular foundation. Like I said, the word church was just a regular Greek word means a group of people called out of the bigger culture, called together as a group for a particular purpose. It was a, a civil, a civics kind of word. So you've got the, the town council was an, an ecclesia, a church. But Jesus gives it a completely new level of meaning when he now talks about this. Notice he says, it's my church. He says, on this rock I will build my church. So who do we belong to? Who do we as a church belong to? We belong to Jesus. We are his. Now, when I get together with other pastor friends, we, we have conversations. How are things going at your church? You know, at my church, we're doing this. We use that kind of language. You guys probably kind of use that language too. You might say, um, hey, at my church this weekend, we're doing this outreach thing at the pool. Now, there's nothing wrong with that language. But what Jesus is saying here is a deeper meaning. While, yes, we do all belong to this particular congregation, this is our church, at a much grander level, this church belongs to Jesus. It is his church. And the church, the the whole universal church, the global church, belongs to him. He says, "On, on this rock I'll build my church. What's the rock? What's the foundation?" Some church traditions have said Peter is the rock, that the man who made the confession is the rock. And so then there's this lineage of people who follow after Peter who are considered the the primary person in the church. If that is the case, Peter is a lousy rock of foundation because it's only a few verses later, you can read it for yourself, where Jesus has to rebuke Peter and he actually calls him Satan. So if Jesus is saying here, uh, you, Peter, I'm going to build my church. Jesus has made a terrible mistake. And he realizes it just a few verses later where he has to call him Satan. The alternative is that on the rock means on the rock of the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I think that's a much better explanation. It's not built on a particular person who is very fallible. It's going to mess things up royally. It's built instead on the confession, the truth, that simple creed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now notice, in that verse, he also gives the first hint of the the action, the mission orientation of the church. He says, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. We are called to be an outward-focused church, an outward-pointed church. Now we exist for the glory of God. And part of the glory of God, the way that God is glorified in the world, is by more people coming to know him. And so we as a church are to be outward focused. Jesus here, he's talking about like storming the gates of hell. This is, this is not only a war picture, this is, we are an on offense kind of picture. This is, this is kind of crazy. Maybe you're familiar with the famous SEAL Team 6. So in 2011, they're the ones that go in on the commando raid and they kill Osama bin Laden. 
right? So this, this uh, night vision picture that we have here, this is them on that raid to kill Osama bin Laden. Amazingly, none of them are killed in that process. Totally successful, amazing mission, right? Well, the year after that, they're sent on a, on a very different mission where they go in under the cover of night into Somalia. So uh, Daniel was sharing about how Abdi in Kenya recently led a Somali young man to faith in Christ, so Somali by nationality. And uh, in this case, this group goes into the country of Somalia, which is primarily a Muslim country and is overrun by crazy terrorists. They go in, nighttime raid, in order to rescue this man and this woman. He's a, a Danish citizen. She was an American citizen. They were being held as, uh, as prisoners, as captives. They had been kidnapped by the, the Muslim terrorists there. They go in, they rescue them, they extract them, bring them back out to safety, saving their lives. Do you think of the church like that? Daring nighttime rescue mission to save someone's life. We probably don't think about the church that much, but doesn't that sound like what Jesus just said? The gates of hell will not prevail against his church? If we tend to think of church as we get together on Sunday mornings, we sing some songs. By the way, you guys were singing great this morning. Sounded wonderful. Very encouraging. Sing some songs. We hear a message. We talk with people and we go home. If that's what we think of church is, that doesn't look anything like what Jesus just casually drops as a bomb in verse 18 there. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Jesus here, he's, he's talking about how he's constituting his church. It's his people. He's going to call them out. That's the idea of the church, the word ecclesia, called out, called together as a purpose. He draws them together. He revealed to Peter, God revealed to Peter the truth of who Jesus is. God does that today through the witness of Christians, through the witness of his word, as he reveals that truth, as he calls out people and calls them together as a congregation. He is constituting, he's pulling together his church. We don't constitute the church. God constitutes his church. Next, we're going to see the truth of how he has chartered the church. That is, while he's brought people together, if they're going to live together as a community, is there any kind of structure? Is there a constitution for the newly constituted church? Is there a charter to help us know, like, where's the source of authority? What are we supposed to do? How do we make decisions? And this is the idea of being chartered. So in verse 19, we get this. I will give you, he's speaking to the disciples here, the seed of the church that we are now part of. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is the idea of a delegated authority, that we are ambassadors for God. God is the authority, the creator, the sustainer, the ruler over all the universe, and yet he has delegated to us, his church, authority as ambassadors. An ambassador only has an authority if he's given that authority by someone higher up. So if the president chooses an ambassador to go to a particular country, he bestows on him the authority to speak to a limited degree on behalf of the United States as an ambassador, to make decisions, to make 
promises, to make deals, to represent the country. We are given that here and in other places, but this is the first real hint of it. We are given that authority, that delegated authority, where Jesus says, I give you the keys to the kingdom. What's he talking about there? He's saying that the church is used to draw boundaries for where the kingdom starts and ends. There are two basic kingdoms in the world. There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of Satan. And everyone is in one of those two kingdoms. There are no neutral parties. And if you think you're a neutral party, you're actually in the kingdom of Satan. How do you know if you have moved from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God? When we got together last week, one of the things we talked about repeatedly was the idea of assurance of a salvation. How do you know if you are really part of the family of God? This is part of it. This idea of giving authority to the church to draw boundaries for the kingdom of God. So we are entrusted with the gospel, the message of how God can save his people through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf, our response of repentance and faith. He gives us the gospel. We share the gospel with others. If they respond with repentance and faith and come into the family of God, we have essentially loosed, set free something. God has done it through us. They have come into the kingdom here. When we guard and protect the true gospel, we are drawing boundaries saying, this is outside of the kingdom, this is inside of the kingdom. Now, that is exclusive, that is offensive, but it is necessary. Because if these really are two kingdoms, it is vitally important that people understand which side of the border they're on. If you are living in the kingdom of God, you are in fellowship with God and your eternity is secure in Him. If you are outside the kingdom of God, you are lost and your eternity is one of punishment and damnation. It's really important that we are clear as a church what the gospel is. When we have conversations with people, we want to be clear because we don't want to lead people astray. We don't want to allow a fuzziness and a confusion on that most important thing in their life. Now, Jesus is saying other things in this verse, but that's all that I'm going to pull out for right now. So we've got this idea of a constituted church. We've got Jesus giving us a a charter in the sense of an authority and a structure and boundaries. We would expect at this point, as he's called his people together and he's given them some structure, that he would send them out on mission, but he actually does the exact opposite in this moment. Verse 20, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Does this mean that we are to tell no one that he is the Christ. No. Actually, our mission is exactly the opposite. This is a temporary restraint put on these specific guys. Now, later on, Jesus says, go, tell everybody. But for right now, for his purposes, guys, you got to keep this quiet. I have just opened the box a little bit. I've let you see inside. You know who I am. You know that I'm calling you together. You know that I'm going to be giving you authority but just hold on, don't go tell the world yet. But for us, we are to tell the whole world. This is how he commissions us. So we're going to stay in Matthew, but we're going to flip all the way to the last chapter of Matthew, chapter 28. 
18 through 20. This is what we call the Great Commission. Jesus giving his marching orders to his disciples, and then by extension, all who would believe through the witness of the disciples, and that includes us. So Jesus has died, Jesus has risen from the dead, Jesus has appeared a few times to different groups of disciples, and now he's having his final conversation with his main guys before he ascends to fellowship with the Father in heaven. 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Been part of VCC for a while. You've heard this verse, this passage many, many times, but we need to be remembered and so, or reminded. So let me just break it down here a little chunk at a time. Jesus first says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's, he's speaking about a delegated authority there. So in our Trinitarian understanding of God, the Bible doesn't use the word Trinity, but the whole witness of the Bible is that God is a Trinity. He's three in one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all God, all united as one, and yet somehow still three distinct persons. Mystery of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one. And there is a relationship inside of that Trinity. And we see part of that relationship here. The Father has given or entrusted all authority to the Son. Jesus is the top authority in the world because he has been given that authority. He says, I have all authority. It's all been given to me. Now, what that means is you and I don't have more authority than Jesus. He's given us some authority, particularly like in family and work structures. We are in authority over other people, right? But none of us in this room have the authority to say, Jesus, whatever you're about to say after this, I'm going to reject it. I'm going to ignore it. We don't have the authority to do that. And that's why he's saying this. He's saying, guys, listen up. I'm about to give you a mission, and I want to remind you, I'm the one with the authority here, not you. So don't ignore it, don't disobey it, don't write it off as an option. This is me speaking to you with authority. What does he say next? Go. So the first thing he says, after establishing his authority, is go. We see here, the mission uh, essence of the church. Again, we are, we are not to simply gather together and, and love each other, as important as that is, care for each other, build each other. That is not all of our mission. Jesus knows that we tend to pull inward, and so he starts with that outward focus, pushing us outward. He says, go, go out. I am uh, I'm naturally an introverted person. I don't like to go start conversations with people, even people that I like, even people that I know. Like, when I walk in here on Sunday morning, there is a battle going on inside of me. I know most of you. I like most of you, right? And yet, I walk in, and I'm like, oh, I, I should go talk to that person. I should go talk to this person. I get, 
And like my natural wiring is, I, I don't want to do that. Okay, maybe I'll go sit down in the pew and I'll like pretend I'm in prayer getting ready for the worship service, right? But Jesus has called us, including me, to be outward pointed. And if I can't do that within a group of people that are in a congregation together and we're to love each other, then how in the world am I going to do that like with the outside world? So part of my training of myself in order to be able to go out is in those little things like in Sunday morning, I go out of my comfort zone in order to start conversations with people even in here. Now outside the church, it's harder. We have lived in Versailles a little over five years now, and not once has a nearby neighbor for us come to us, introduced himself, said, hey, my name is, I live over here, you know, welcome, tell me about your family. That never happened. Like when we first moved in, it never happened, and it's never happened since. Now, I have had those conversations with just about every neighbor around us for a couple layers out. And 100% of the time, I have had to initiate those conversations. I don't want to do that. But I am called to be outward pointed. I'm called to go and make disciples. And there's no way that I'm going to be making disciples of people if I can't even talk to my neighbors, right? So we've had a couple families move in just in the last few months. Go, introduce myself. Uh, do it multiple times, find out about their kids, find out about their work, find out about you know, what they like to do for fun, uh, where are they moving from, about their families, all that stuff. I go home, take notes because I'll forget that stuff otherwise. Getting to know people, reaching out, and 100% of the time, I have to be, me, introverted one, I have to be the one to initiate it. That's probably true of many of you guys too. If you're going to have a conversation with your neighbors, if you're going to have a conversation with a, a new coworker or um, somebody you met at the library or whatever, almost 100% of the time, it probably is going to fall on you to initiate that conversation. We are a culture that is getting worse at in-person conversation. We do all of our interacting online, right? You can, you can very easily meet new people on Facebook or whatever and start new friendships with people and have conversations with people. And yet, if I say, I want you to go walk across the street to that new neighbor, introduce yourself, and have a five-minute conversation with them, you're like, I think I have to go to the bathroom. I'm out of here. God knows that. He knew that about the first disciples. He knows that about us. And Jesus starts his great commission with, Go. What does he say next? He says, make disciples. Make disciples. A disciple is a learner, a follower of somebody else. In this case, we're talking about disciples of Jesus specifically. Jesus says, your goal is to make more disciples. We have as our church, we have as our mission statement that that we are to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ in Versailles and around the world. That's why we exist, and that's because that's what Jesus tells us in the Great Commission of why we exist. Our purpose is to make disciples, to make new followers of Jesus, to introduce people to Jesus, to share the gospel with them, to help them come from death into life, and then to grow as a disciple from then on. I'd like to suggest that the idea of making disciples is 
easily understood with two stages. There's the evangelism stage, and there's the discipleship stage. Last night, we talked a lot about evangelism. How do you start a conversation with somebody? What do you share? What, what are the, what's important to share about the gospel with somebody? How, how do you hope to move your neighbor, your friend, your coworker towards making that decision to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's all evangelistic. In fact, the word evangelism or evangelist is the same Greek word as gospel. It's the same Greek root word, euangelion. The word evangelist in our culture today has kind of a nasty um, taste to it, right? Because we think about crazy guys on TV and trying to scam people out of their money and the white suits and all of that stuff. And uh, the reality is, every one of us as followers, as disciples of Jesus, we are called to be evangelistic, even if we're introverted people. Even if that's scary to us, we are called to do that. The second stage, then, is one of discipleship, which we'll talk about in just a minute. But first, notice that Jesus gives us a scope of our mission. Right? So you make disciples of all nations, of all peoples, of everybody everywhere. I want to show you a picture here, a map. So this is a representation of the 7,000-plus unreached people groups in the world. An unreached people group is a group of people, it could be like a little tribe or it could be a whole nation or anything in between, where the average person growing up in that community has basically no chance of hearing the gospel because there's not a Christian witness there and the borders are closed and it's, it's, it's a clamped down community and so regular Joe who's growing up there has no chance, apart from miraculous intervention, of hearing the gospel. The, the red dots are those that are most unreached. The green dots are those that are most reached. And, and you can see that um, like there's, there's a few dots in the United States. So it's telling us like there are cities that have different levels of being reached or unreached. But what I want you to see most clearly is that area called the, the 1040 window there. So on the other side of the globe, that area between the the, the 10th and 40th parallels is what's the, called the 1040 window in missions. And just look at the amazing number of red dots there. Like just the subcontinent of India is almost entirely unreached with the gospel. Now, there are a lot of Christians in India, and they tend to be concentrated together, and Christianity is growing in India despite being cracked down on, Christians being killed. But just in that area, and in Southeast Asia there, there's so many groups of people, tribes, languages, cities, small countries, where the average person has almost no opportunity to hear the gospel. Let's go to the next slide. So this is where the Mahmuds live in Kenya. You can see that that middle part of Africa, there's a lot of people that are reached. But that eastern coast there of Africa, it's got a red streak right down it. And the Mahmuds are in the middle of that. So the place where they live in Kenya is primarily Muslim, and there's a whole bunch of Indian influence too. So, you know, just across the Indian Ocean is the continent of India there, subcontinent of India. There's a lot of mixed blood and mixed 
religion there in that area. And we as a church get to be part of supporting the work of the gospel there in one of those red dots in Mombasa, Kenya. Let's go to one more image here before we leave this idea. This is a different way of visualizing the world by scaling the countries and continents to show you the need for the gospel. If we were to swell up the areas where the most people live with virtually no hope of hearing the gospel, you get these giant bulbous things like India right there in the middle. And you got North America, Central America, South America, there's skinny little lines over on the side. Because if you grow up on this side of the world, the chances are, if you have your ears open, you will have opportunity to hear the gospel. But even if you want to, even if you, you have a discontent with all the religious system that you grew up with in India, even you're just crying out, there must be something more. There are many places over there where you do not have the option to hear. That's why we are called to go. Now, not all of us are going to actually physically go, but I want to show you this passage in Romans 10, and we'll come back to Matthew 28. Paul's writing in Romans 10, and he's, he's going to talk about this idea of going. He says this in Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's kind of this summary, high-level summary of the gospel, right? How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching or proclaiming the gospel? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? There's this chain reaction that Paul talks about. Now, in the framework of this small passage in Romans 10, as we think about the idea of going on mission for God, really there's only three options for our engagement. We can go. We can be one of those proclaimers. We can be sent. So we can fund, we can pray, we can encourage, we can send people out, or we can disobey. That's really it. So Christian... Are you willing to go? Maybe it's just across the alley to your neighbor. Maybe it's across the world to some village in India that has no gospel witness. Are you willing to go? Are you willing to send? Now, when you contribute to the the church here, we take 10% of everything that comes in, and we turn that outward through our, our outreach budget, supporting missionaries. But are you, are you willing to sacrifice more and, and give directly to missionaries? Are you willing to send? Or are you going to settle for disobedience? <clears throat> um, Daniel, in the, uh, the opening, he mentioned that conversation on Facebook. And I want to just show you what we're talking about here. So let's, let's go forward a slide here. So this is what Abdi said. Rejoice, give thanks. A young Somali man, 20 years old, responded to the gospel this morning. He had shown an interest in the scriptures, and I had a chance to share the gospel with him for about an hour. He was ready to respond in faith immediately, and we had the joy of welcoming him into the family of faith. God is good, and indeed, he is at work. A couple things I want to point out. That is possible, because Abdi and Laura went. They took the go seriously, and they went. They could only go because people like us 
supported them to send them. And back to that Romans thing. But I want you to notice something in the text itself. Abdi here, who is a master at sharing the gospel with Muslim background believers because he was raised as a Muslim, heard the gospel, embraced it, became a Christian, and now serves as a pastor, elder, missionary, church planter there. He spent an hour explaining the gospel to this guy who was already primed and ready. He was already showing interest in the scriptures, meaning the Bible. And yet it took an hour of skilled, patient conversation that then paid off in this young man turning his life over to Christ, being made new. How much more time is it going to take us to have conversations with people that lead them to the truth of the gospel? Don't expect it to be a fast thing. Even if you're all practiced up, like Russell's really practiced up. Russell's always having conversations with people, right? And yet it takes a long time. It takes multiple conversations. Last night, Jen had a great insight she shared with me. She said, how do we expect our people to engage in spiritual conversations with people out there in the world if we don't have spiritual conversations with each other here, if we're not practicing? So we can get together and we can talk about golf and we can talk about vacation and we can talk about sports teams, we can, all that stuff. But if we're never saying, hey, tell me, how is it going with you and Jesus? Are you learning? Are you, are you being challenged in things? Right? Or her example was taking the things, the challenges in our lives and turning them to spiritual conversations. So if you're talking to somebody about diet and the, the weight that you're trying to lose, or your frustration with your kids or your frustration with your job or whatever, how do you turn that into a more spiritual conversation, bring God into the middle of it? If you practice with each other, you will be more equipped to have the kind of conversations that Abdi had with this young, now Somali believer on the outside. All right, we got to wrap this up. Let's get back to uh, Matthew 28 here. He, he goes on, so he's, you're making disciples of all nations. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So in the New Testament, when somebody becomes a Christian, it's almost immediately, sometimes there's a little bit of delay, but basically immediately after that, that they, be, they become baptized. They submit to the command of baptism. If, if you're a Christian here today and you've not yet been baptized, like as a believer, after you've become a follower of Jesus, then let me encourage you, to be baptized this September when we have our special baptism celebration and picnic. It's part of the commission. Baptizing in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit. Verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So we've got the evangelism side, and now we've got the discipleship side. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. You and I, as a church, are tasked with teaching each other how to better be disciples of Jesus Christ. It's not just me standing up here talking for too long trying to get you guys to be disciples of Jesus. It's all of us discipling each other, even in casual relationships, helping each other grow in our walk with Christ so that we're more obediently following everything that He has commanded us. And then He, le- he ends with a promise here. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The guys that He's talking to, The first disciples, the apostles, the ones who are being sent out, the ones who first hear him say, go to all the nations, they will, for a while, ignore that, and they'll cluster together in fear in Jerusalem. 
But then Jesus will blow the church doors open. He'll send them out in all directions. These guys will become pioneer frontline missionaries all over the Mediterranean region, down into Africa, out into the Indian subcontinent, up into southern Europe. They will scatter all over the place. And all but one of them will lose their lives as martyrs. But Jesus is saying here, no matter if you're going down to, towards Africa, like Philip sent down that way, no matter if you sent like Thomas out towards India, Paul who's jumping all over the place in the Mediterranean, no matter where you're going, Jesus says, and by the way, no matter how your life ends, I'm going with you, even to the end. So if you're like me, and the idea of walking across the alley and talking to your neighbor is scary. Remember, Jesus goes with you, even to the other side of the alley. If God is calling you overseas, sending you to South America for a while as a missionary, God is going with you. If God is calling you to sacrifice in your standard of living in order to send somebody else, He is with you. So how do we apply this? I mean, God has been very clear in the two passages in Matthew and the one passage in Romans. It should be clear to us what it is he's saying to us, but how are we going to apply this to our lives? Well, part of it is that we as a church have taken these passages and we have applied them for our mission statement, which I shared earlier, the idea that VCC exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ in Versailles and around the world. We do that not just as as a whole church, but we do that, do that as individuals. How might you be able to do that as a church and as individuals? Let me give you some suggestions. First, let me encourage you to come to the pool party from 5 to 8. If you are an adult, you get in free. They're assuming you're not swimming. If you're a kid and you have a pool pass, it's $1 to get in. That covers the cost of the extra things that they're doing. If you don't have a pool pass, it's $2 to get in. But still, for three hours of swimming and fun, that's a great deal. We are going, as individuals and as a church, not just to have a great time. We're going to serve, we're going to be a blessing to people, and we're going, hopefully, for God to use us to build relationship bridges with people, to have conversations with people that He can then use to bring people into the kingdom of God in the future. So, if you're coming to the pool party, I encourage you, as you're coming in, as you're walking in, be praying, God, what do you have for me? Who do you want me to talk to? What do you want me to say? How do you want me to turn a a surface-level conversation towards a, a deeper spiritual reality? I don't know what to do, God, but I know that you are the authority over everything. You rule over everything. You've sent me. I'm going. Please, help me. I need you be with me, and I know that you have promised to do exactly that. Um, I was, I was going to go to a few different things, but I'll tell you what, I'm just going to leave it at that. I'll leave it at that challenge for the pool party, and I'm going to pray for us right now, and uh, kind of as a way of emboldening us and encouraging us, not only for that pool party, but just for our work and our school and the other things that we spend our time in, the interactions we have with people. So let's, let's close this in prayer right now. Father, uh, thank you for your, your words delivered to us through Matthew and through Paul. Thank you, Jesus, that you have called us out. You've 
called us together as a people. You've given us authority. You've given us marching orders, a mission. You've sent us out. Lord, I want to pray that you would overcome our fears, you would overcome our anxieties, you would overcome our immaturities, our, our lack of knowing the Bible and having passages memorized or knowing how to answer the tough questions. All of that, Lord, would you overcome that? And would you help us to be going people? For those who are coming to the pool party this afternoon, Lord, please use us in small ways or big ways. Use us in conversations, in acts of service, in kindness, in facilitating a great time for the kids there. Lord, use us as a light in the dark world. Uh, Lord, I pray for the, that young dad who was at the bouncy house um, on Friday night and was just so thankful that we were providing adult supervision for the bouncy house because it meant his daughter could play in there safely and not get run over by a bunch of two big kids. Lord, I want to pray for him uh, that he would remember um, the church, our church was serving in that way and that it would cause him to be curious about you. Pray, Lord, that somehow you would either bring him back into contact with us or into some other believer's life and that they or us, that we could share the gospel with that man, that you would use that time at the bouncy house as a, an opened door that would eventually lead to his salvation. Lord, I, I pray that you would embolden us, that you would encourage us, that you would build us up. Lord, that you would uh, help us to see all that's at stake and that you'd make us want to be an outward-pointed people. Lord, we want you to be glorified in Versailles and in Greenville and Dark County and surrounding areas. We want you to be glorified in Mombasa, Kenya. Lord, we want your name to be lifted up. We want people to think more of you, to see you more for who you are. So give us the courage, Lord, to do what you've commissioned us to do. Help us to take small steps, engage people in conversation, point them to the truth of the gospel. Lord, please use us in that way. We are broken, fallible, um, rusty tools. We offer ourselves to you for that you would do great things through us for the building of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.